All right, good morning, church. It's great to see. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 7. And while you're doing that, I want to welcome those of you that are watching us at Church at Home and uh, welcome our East Memphis campus. Uh, if you're in the room at Carville, let's give a round of applause for our, our family at East Memphis watching us online. We're glad you're joining us this morning. Matthew chapter 7 is where we're going to be, and you can be turning there as well. And um, if you will stand for the reading of God's Word, we are going to jump right in. I'm going to be reading Matthew 7, verses 7 through 12, and this is what it says. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Let's pray together. Lord, Father, as we humble ourselves around your word, God, there are so many things that I, in my own flesh, uh, would want to see. God, uh, we pray and we long to see hearts transformed. God, I pray personally that we would be a people, that we would be a church that is marked by prayer. God, that we would regularly run to you as our treasure, as our hope, as our confidence, as our righteousness, and God, that we would be a people um, who regularly ask, seek, and knock. God, not for your hand, but for your face. God, help us to do this. Um, I can't produce any of that in any soul. I can't produce that in my own soul. But God, I know that you can. So Father, your spirit is in us, your word is in front of us, and God, we invite you to move. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. Well, Charles Spurgeon, uh, you've probably, if you've been to High Point for any number of weeks, you've heard us at least give you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Um, Charles Spurgeon is probably one of the greatest preachers um, in all of preaching uh, since the first century. Apart from Jesus, Charles Spurgeon is kind of known as one of the most famous, most popular, uh, most effective, if you can use that term, preachers um, in our modern day. And uh, what's so fascinating about Charles Spurgeon is he was a preacher, and so many people would go to his church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, to go and to listen to him preach, to see what God was up to in their church. And every single time people would go to his church, um, he wouldn't take them to the auditorium, to the stage. It was called a pulpit back in the day. He wouldn't take them there where the preaching would happen. In fact, he would take them to the basement, uh, to what he called the engine room of his church. And it is where every Sunday, without fail, while he was preaching, there were lots of people in the basement on their knees in prayer before the Lord that God would move. And he would take them there. He actually called it um, the engine room. He called it the powerhouse of his church. And he said, if this stops, then nothing happens here at our church. He said, if this, what's happening in this room during our services, if this, is, if this ever stops, then the mill stops, the work stops, the labor stops, everything stops. And he attributes all of the fame and recognition and all of those things, all of the ways that God moved in his church to what happens in the engine room on Sunday mornings. Elevating, the I mean, the greatest preacher of all, elevating the fact, in fact, uh, elevating prayer. He says, um, I'd rather teach one man to pray than 10 men to preach. 
And this is the greatest preacher, you know, of our earthly human modern day. I'd rather teach one man to pray than 10 men to preach. And he actually argues that the first sign of a dying church is that they are slothful in prayer. And I would agree with him. And this morning, we are going to dive into another round of heart surgery. Um, that's kind of an inside joke here at Carville Campus. We've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount for who knows how many weeks now. And every week, God is just piercing at our hearts. He is going after our hearts. He's going after our flesh. He's going after all the ways that we depend on ourselves, um, that we put our hope in ourselves, that we put our hope in our own abilities, our own works, our own actions. And he is just continuing to chip away at our hard hearts. And, uh, you know, just before we get confident, he's going to do it again today. Um, so if you're looking with me, we're going to dive in to um, Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to look at verse 7. Um, but I tell you all of this, and I kind of set this up because um, some of you, I mean, you heard what we just read, right? Everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds. And some of you, I think if we were honest, you'd go, man, if that was how my prayer life worked, I would pray much more often, wouldn't I? Like if it was that easy, if it was that simple, if I could just ask and I could receive, if I could just seek and I would find him, if I could just knock and all the doors would be opened, then I wouldn't have any trouble praying. But if we're honest in here, we all have a, a, a lot of room to grow when it comes to prayer and I would venture to say not many of our prayer lives happen just like that. And I would be willing to argue this morning, I'm about to argue this morning, um, it's because I think we've misinterpreted this text. Um, Peter ends his epistle in, uh, in 2 Peter 3. He actually says that there's some things in the scriptures. He's referring to Paul's letters specifically, but then he, he talks about all of the scriptures. He says there's, there's some things that are hard to understand. And then he says that the ignorant and the unstable come along and they take these things that are hard to understand and they twist them to their own destruction. And I would venture to say that there are probably some of the texts that we're gonna read this morning, the passage that we just read, other texts on prayer, um, are very easy for someone to come along and to twist and to distort um, for our own destruction. So we're gonna look at them this morning, we're gonna talk about them, and the best way to understand this text, the best way to understand any text is to understand the context. Good hermeneutical, this just means Bible interpretation principle is the best way to understand a text is to understand the context. And we've reviewed the context of the Sermon on the Mount every week, but we're gonna do it again until we get it. My hope is that six months from now, a year from now, you've got people over, somebody mentions you know, some of the classic verses from the Sermon on the Mount, and you go, oh, let me tell you about that sermon. And you are able to sit down with someone and walk them through the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus is doing. And if you remember, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We started this series 13, 14 weeks ago. And Jesus is contrasting this outward, exterior, fake, phony religion of the scribes and the Pharisees with the genuine religion of his disciples. And he does this all throughout the sermon. He contrasts two different sets of things all throughout the sermon. And he starts the sermon contrasting the heart, word, the heart attitude of his followers that there's this proud, arrogant attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus told this parable one time where there's two people praying and one of them prays and says, dear God, I'm so glad that I'm not like this person, you know, essentially that I've got all my stuff together, that I'm great, that I'm awesome. And then he shows the poor man over to the side and he's praying, dear God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
right? You've got the, the arrogant, prideful attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus starts this way in Matthew 5. Or his followers are poor in spirit. They're broken, right? They mourn over their sin. They hunger and they thirst for a righteousness that's not their own. They know we know as Jesus followers that we're spiritually bankrupt, that we can't produce enough for God to love us, for God to approve of us, that it requires a righteousness that is not our own. And we hunger and we thirst for it, we long for it, we mourn over our sins. So he contrasts these two attitudes, right? That his followers hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. And then he moves into the two interpretations of the law. You've got the scribes and the Pharisees, and they've got one way to interpret the law where it's, I haven't murdered anybody, I haven't committed physical adultery. Look at me, I'm righteous. Try to be like me. And then you've got Jesus followers who say, no, 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 we wanna be righteous at the heart level. But yeah, it's one thing to not kill anybody. It's another thing to obey God's law to the point where we're not angry with one another, we're not vengeful towards one another, we're not bitter towards one another. Yeah, it's one thing to not you know, physically commit adultery. It's another thing to not commit adultery in our hearts all the time with the Lord, with our spouse, with one another, where we just think about using one another for our own pleasure. Jesus is contrasting these two interpretations of the law. And he ends that section with, there's two righteousness, two kinds of righteousness that you can pursue. The outward righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees or you need, he ends that section with, you need a greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. You need a heart level, you need an inward righteousness that you can't produce. And what does he do after that? He moves into these Christian practices of righteousness. And he starts with giving to the needy. And he says, there's one way to give to the needy. This outward external trying to win the praises of men. And then there's another way to give to the needy that isn't trying to win anything. There's a way to give to the needy that's not trying to win people's praise, win God's favor, win his love, but because you already have it. And then he moves into prayer, which we're gonna revisit again today. There's a way to pray where you're trying to win approval, win righteousness. This exterior way to pray where you are concerned with the thoughts of the people around you. And then there's a inward, genuine way to pray. Not for God's love, but because you have it so you can run to your Father and you can ask him for things. And you're not trying to perform, you're not trying to impress people with your words or with the length of your prayers, that the goal of the prayer of a disciple of Jesus isn't to be impressive, it's to be honest, it's to be broken, it's to be vulnerable, it's to be upfront. And then he moves into fasting. There's two ways to fast. One is to you know, make your face look dirty and tired so that other people can look at you and go, man, you must be a really, really good Christian. You must, you must know God's word a lot, you must be really impressive, look at you fasting, and then there's another one that makes, goes out of your way to make sure you're not doing it for the attention of others, that you know because um, Jesus was able to go without so many things for me that, man, I would be glad to forego a meal so that I could begin to experience more dependence on God today. Not to try to win any extra points with him, but to, as as. Paul would say to share in his suffering a little more, to depend on him a little more, that I know that I need God more than my next meal and that I would forego that meal so that I could experience more intimacy with him. Do you see the difference? And then what does Jesus do? He moves into um, what I think is probably the linchpin of the whole letter where he says there are two treasures, there's two eyes, and there's two masters that you can serve, right? That you can have 
Um, your life can be devoted to storing up treasures here on this earth that um, moth and rust can destroy, that they don't last, they're not eternal, they fade away, here one day, gone the next, or we can devote our lives to a heavenly treasure, namely Jesus Christ himself, and we can store up treasures related to his kingdom and what he's doing on the earth. And depending on what treasure we choose, depending on which kind of eye we have, and Jesus went through, if you have a good eye, that you will move towards these things, you will move towards the heavenly treasure. If you have a bad eye, you'll move towards the earthly treasure and all the things that don't last. And then we talked about this a lot, so I don't wanna spend a lot of time on it, um, but your treasure, um, the things in life that you treasure, and we talked about, man, how all of us quickly take our eyes and our affection off of Jesus and we can make a good thing on this earth a God thing and worship it and make it become our treasure and it can quickly become our master. That our treasure can become our master, especially when it comes to earthly things, very, very quickly. And I would argue that this talk about treasure is going to affect the rest of the sermon because what does Jesus do next? He uses a therefore saying, hey, this next thing that I'm gonna say connects back to your treasure. And what does he say? Don't be anxious about the things of this earth. Don't be anxious about you know, food and clothing and all of those things. Why? Because what you get anxious about is the prime indicator of what you treasure in your heart. Now, you and I, we do not get anxious about things that we don't care about and things that we don't love. We just don't. I, there's a whole realm of things that I don't get anxious about during the week. But take away the things I care about, put those in jeopardy, and I'll start to get anxious. I'll start to worry. My little kingdom that I'm trying to preserve and to protect and to build starts to fade, and I'll get anxious. But what you get anxious about is a prime indicator of what you treasure. And also, what you treasure has a major effect on how we relate to one another. And this is what we talked about last week. That if Jesus Christ is my treasure and I regularly run to him, I see his holiness and his word, I see my wretchedness and all the ways that I am wicked and awful and selfish and all of those things, that if Jesus Christ is my treasure and I'm regularly running after him, then I will meditate on and dwell on my own sins so much that I don't have time to go and be judgmental to you for yours. That I'll have a, you know, a plank look when it comes to my sin and a speck look when it comes to your sin. If he's my treasure and I'm regularly spending time with him and I'm experiencing all of his holiness, all of his peace, all of his wisdom, and I realize that I don't measure up to any of those things, then I've got a lot to deal with and I don't have time to be judgmental towards your sin. And now, today, I would argue that Jesus is gonna keep moving right along, that our treasure not only affects what we're anxious about, but it affects what we pray about. And this is what we're going to talk about this morning, that our treasure will affect what we pray about. And just for extra credit, if you want to see all the contrast for the rest of this sermon, Jesus is going to say there's two roads that you can choose from, one to life, one to destruction. There's two trees, one with good fruit, one with poisonous fruit. And then he's going to say there's two ways to build your life or to build your house, one on the foundation of the gospel and one on sand. And here's kind of the level playing field of the whole sermon. When Jesus is contrasting all of these externals with these genuine internals of his disciples, I can't see any of these. You can't see any of these in one another. That this is heart surgery week after week because it is between you and the Lord. It is between 
your honest devotional time, your walk, your thoughts about God, your genuine relationship with the Lord. And we use this illustration of there could be two people in this room right now. You showed up, you raised your hands during some songs, you put some money in the bucket as it came by, you got your Bible and your notebook out and you're taking notes, and one of them is doing it because if I just do these things, I hope that God might love me a little more, that God might finally think I'm worthy. The other one would be doing it because they know it doesn't matter what they do, that God has already determined that they're loved and that they're worthy in Christ. You see the difference? One's raising their hands and going through all of these motions and doing the things, hoping that God might love them, hoping that they can perform enough that God might look at them and say, yep, you've finally done it. The other one is throwing their hands up, knowing that they're a wretch, and their only plea is Christ's perfect life and his shed blood in their place. And it doesn't matter what they do, that God loves them through Christ. And we can't see your heart, we can't see your motives, so the good news about this whole sermon is I get to be really honest and really blunt with God's word and we trust the Holy Spirit to work it out in all of our hearts. So let's do that again. Let's look at verse seven uh, this morning. It says this, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. So here we go, ask, seek, knock. Pretty simple. Doesn't need a whole lot of illustrations here, right? Just ask and seek and knock. And in the Greek, these tenses are all in the present tense, meaning it's a continuous thing. So it's keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And they're also commands. So this is not a suggestion from the Lord. He is commanding us to keep asking, to keep seeking, and to keep knocking. One commentator if you want one illustration, said it's almost like regardless of where you are with your walk with the Lord, if you're in Christ, none of us have an excuse. If you feel like God is near, then ask him. If you feel like God's a little further away from you, then seek after him and then ask him. If you feel like God shut the door on you, then start knocking, he'll open the door and then seek him and then start asking, right? So wherever you fall, if you're in Christ, then this is a command for us to continuously keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. But it's a command with a promise. And look at what he says in verse eight. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And I would venture to say this is where things depart from the text for most of us. Because like I said earlier, if your prayer life felt like that, you wouldn't have any problem asking, seeking, and knocking, would you? And this is where the questions start to creep in. Okay, I'm not seeing the promise. I'm asking, or I've asked before, right? I've sought before, I've knocked before, and this didn't happen. And here's where I think if we wanna be really honest with ourselves, this is where I think the rubber meets the road for this text. And in fact, this is how I think it connects back to where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Because just like anxiety is a sign of what we really treasure, I would argue that so is prayer. That prayer is one of the telltale signs. What you get anxious about is a clear sign of what you treasure, and I would argue your prayer life is probably the telltale sign of what you treasure. Your prayer life will give away, it's an indicator of what you treasure the most. What do I mean by that? If the thing that you and I, if what we treasure the most is God, then we will pray. We will ask, 
We will seek. We will knock. Right? When you're at home alone and you've got nothing else to think about, what, what do you start to think about? Good indicator of what your treasure is. But if God is our treasure, then we will run to him. We will spend time with him. We will want to dwell with him. We will want to be with him. But if the thing that you treasure most is not God, then you will only pray when what you really treasure is in jeopardy. And if I can be vulnerable with you, this has been not very enjoyable in my study this week, wrestling with that truth. That most of the time, I don't pray to God because he is my heavenly treasure. I pray to him when I can no longer preserve my earthly treasure and I need him to do it for me. You see the difference? I don't run to God because he's my heavenly treasure. I run to him asking him to give me more earthly treasure, to preserve my kingdom, to preserve my earthly treasure, which shows me that there are a lot of times in my own life, all of our hearts are prone to wander. When I am treasuring something on this earth, if it's my own job, my own stuff, my own possessions, my own health, my own reputation, you name it. And as long as that's good, I don't pray. But until my little kingdom starts to be in jeopardy, then I go to God and I say, hey God, can you take care of what I really treasure and what I really want? Anybody in here relate? Is that too honest? Anybody know a friend that can relate to this this morning, right? So true, right? We tend to view prayer as a means to get what we really treasure. And I think this is the key to understanding this text. And this is the key to understanding most texts and most passages about prayer. Because that's not how scripture views prayer. But boy, do we love to cherry pick a verse out of the middle of the Bible and give it to you. And let me give you one, John 14, 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And we go, amen, brother, right? <laughs> Bring on the jet ski or whatever it is, right? Like, Jesus' name, that's it. I just gotta throw this phrase on the end of my prayer and then God gives me what I really treasure. And so many of us, if we're honest, and this is why this is heart surgery, this is why this is so painful to think about, when, we, when it comes to prayer, most of our theology or our methodology around prayer is how do I get the formula right so that God can give me what I really love and what I really want? And this is where we've gone astray, that we don't see the God of the universe as our greatest treasure, and we see him as a means to get what we really treasure and what we really love. And we read verses like this that say, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Here's the phrase, just, Lord, here's what I need in Jesus' name. Bring it on. But what's the best way to understand a text is to understand the context and look at the verse right before it. Verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it, right? Asking in Jesus' name isn't just this magical phrase like genie in Aladdin where you just, here it is, in Jesus' name, this is what I want. No, to ask in Jesus's name means that you have on your heart what's on his heart. Namely, that the Father would be glorified in the Son. And Jesus says, hey, if you keep asking for that and seeking that and knocking for that, 
I'm gonna answer that prayer. I'm gonna give it to you. But do you see how the context matters? We're gonna talk about beware of false prophets in a couple weeks, so come back for that. We're gonna talk all about this. But this is why we encourage you to bring your Bibles to church because it's easy for somebody to just cherry pick a verse out from somewhere without giving you the context. And you would leave here going, I don't know what it is. I'm asking in Jesus' name. I'm saying the phrase. I feel like, you know, I read my Bible this morning and God's not giving me what I really want. And we missed it. We have a tendency to miss it. One of my favorites, um, John 12, 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Oh, I already read that one. Psalms 37, verse four. Here's a good one, 37, four. Delight yourself in the Lord, finish it with me, church, and he will give you the desires of your heart, right? Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. But look at that first phrase for a second. It doesn't mean, you know, read your Bible once. It doesn't mean, you know, go to church a couple times, and then God will give you what you really want and what you really treasure. What is he saying? Delight yourself in the Lord. Make God your delight. Make God the desire of your heart and God will give you the desire of your heart. This is what he's saying, right? It's not a formula. It's not this magic thing to say, here's how I'm gonna use the God of the universe to get what I really treasure. It's no, treasure me and I'll give you myself. That's the verse. I'm the treasure. I'm all that you need. I'm where your joy is found. I'm where your hope is found. I'm where your peace is found. I'm where your identity is found. I'm where your security is found. Make me your delight, and I'll gladly give you myself. This is the context of the passage. But man, are our hearts so fickle. And man, do we see a good thing on this earth that's a good gift from God, and we worship it, and we long for it, and we treasure it, and it has a tendency to become our master. And because we treasure it, our heart is there also. John 15, verse seven. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Don't miss that first phrase. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. And it doesn't mean just to spend a few minutes alone in your Bible reading time with the Lord. No, if you abide in him, if you remain in him, if you have on your mind what's on his mind, if you have on your heart what's on his heart, if his word is in your heart and it starts to flow out of you, Luke says out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks, that if you start to to abide in Christ truly, not just if you read your Bible this morning to ease your conscience, but if we, if you and I, if we regularly abide and spend time with the Lord, it changes what we ask. And Jesus says that when you're abiding in me and you're asking for my name to be glorified, for my will to be done, I'm gonna answer those prayers. I'm gonna be there. I'm gonna give you the yes that you're looking for. Last one, and then we'll look at Jesus's model prayer once again. 1 John 5, and this is the confidence that that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we ask anything according to his will, Psalms 115 verse three says, God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Ephesians one talks about how God works all things to the counsel of his will. Romans 12 says that God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. God's gonna do his will. God's gonna do whatever he wants. He works all things according to his will. 
And John in 1 John is telling us that if we ask according to God's will, he will hear us. Well, what does scripture tell us about God's will? Romans 8, 29, this is God's will for our lives. This is what he predestined us for, that we would be conformed to the image of his son. That you and I, you wanna know God's will for your life, God's plan for your life, is that you would look more like Jesus Christ. That's God's will for your life. That day after day, you would look more and more like the Son. As you abide in him, as you spend time with him, as his Holy Spirit is in you, convicting you of sin, as you behold him in his word, and as 1 Corinthians says, you're transformed from one degree of glory to another. What's God's will for your life? 1 Thessalonians chapter four. This is God's will, your sanctification, right? That you would be made holy, that you would look like the Son. 1 Timothy two, God's will is that all people would come to a a knowledge of the truth and that they would be saved. God's will for our lives is that you and I would experience more of him, that we would experience more of the greatest treasure of all, namely himself. This is God's will for our lives. And John says that if we ask according to his will, he will hear us and he will grant us those requests. But some of you, this might be your hangup. Why why do I even pray if God's gonna do what he wants? Right? Why pray if God's sovereign, if nothing can stop his will, nothing can thwart his plan, God's in the heavens, Psalms 115, he's gonna do whatever he pleases. Why even pray? And here's where I would say, God has ordained the end. Nothing can stop God from what he's going to do, but he has also ordained the means. And the means by which those things happen are his children praying to him, crying out to him, experiencing intimacy with him and communion with him and fellowship with him along the way. That God's means to accomplish his purposes and his will and his kingdom in the earth is for his sons and daughters to rise up and to pray. That you and I get to be a part of God's great plan, his redemptive work to reconcile a people from every tribe and tongue and nation to himself. And part of the means by which we do that is sharing the gospel Part of the means by which we do that is to to live out this love and this grace and this forgiveness that we've received. But another, probably the most important part of how we do this is by our prayers to him. In fact, this is exactly how Jesus taught us to pray. And we did a whole sermon on the Lord's Prayer. But I wanna revisit it for a second because this falls right in line with what all of these other texts about prayer consistently teach us. What does Jesus say in Matthew 6? Pray then like this. Notice he doesn't say pray this prayer. This is a model prayer. It's not a sin if you pray a different prayer. He just says pray like this. This should be the way in which you pray. Your prayer should look something like this. And what does he say? Our Father who's in heaven, right? Not our heavenly dictator, but our heavenly Father. That the only reason that you and I even get to approach him is because he's adopted us into his family through the gospel. Our Father. And then he says who's in heaven? That's not just telling God where his current location is, right? It's a description about his power, that God is in heaven, he's ruling the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1, that he holds all things together, that he's created all things, he's the one currently holding it together, he's working it all according to his will. Our Father who's in heaven, and then hallowed be thy name. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. But hallowed be is not an adjective, He's not saying awesome be your name or awesome is your name. The word hallowed be your name is actually a verb in the Greek. It's a command, which is weird. Theologians call it a soft command because it's weird for us to sit down and to command God to do things. 
But what he's saying here is command, it's commanding God, it's pleading with God to make his own name great. He's not saying, our God in heaven, your name is awesome. He's giving God a command. Make your name great. The first thing we pray, God, make your name great on the earth. God, make your name great in my own heart. God, make your name great in my family. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Another verb. God, make your kingdom come in my life. Establish more of your rule in my heart, more, more of your reign in my heart. God, make your kingdom come in this house, in this church, in my kids' lives. God, make your name great. Make your kingdom come. God, cause your will to be done. God, do it in my own life, in my family's life, in my agenda, in my heart. You see what he's doing here. God is not the means to his end. God is the end. And he has ordained the means that you and I could pray with him and talk to him and commune with him and fellowship with him. God, you're my treasure. God, make your name great in my heart. God, make your name more great in my life, greater today than it was yesterday. God, make your will be done. Not my name be great. God, it's so easy. My default setting is to wake up and to make my own name greater. In my business, in my workplace, on my street. God, I don't wanna do that. My name can't do anything for anybody. God, make your name great. God, it's so easy to wake up and to pursue my kingdom and try to build my own. No, God, my kingdom won't last. My kingdom will crumble. God, Make your kingdom come. Calls your rule and your reign to be greater in my heart. And then God calls your will to be done. And then, and I don't want you to hear me totally discount supplication and asking God for things in your prayers. Because Jesus leaves room for that in the prayers. But notice where it fits. That our prayers should look something like, God, I want more of you more of your name, more of your kingdom, more of your rule, more of your reign, more of your will in my life. And as you're doing those things, give me what I need to sustain me, to provide for me, to provide for my family. God, as you're doing those things, then come along and give me what I need. And you can ask for whatever you need. And God tells us to ask. Ephesians 6 Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, always keep on praying for all the saints that you can pray for whatever you want. But Jesus is in this model prayer. He is guarding us against the majority of our prayers God being turning into, God, just give me what I really treasure. God, give me what I really want. God, let me say the magic words so you can give me the thing that I actually love. Biblical prayer looks something very different than that from people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus. It's you're the treasure, you're the gift, you're the one I want. I want more of you, more of your name, more of your kingdom, more of your will. And God, as you're doing those things, here are my requests. But as Jesus said, Lord, not my will, not my kingdom, not my name, but your will and your kingdom and your name be done. So what is the it, if we can go back to Matthew 7? What is the it that Jesus promises, right? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. Everyone who knocks, the door is open. And here's what I think the it is. 
The it is whatever you ask for, God will give you good things, regardless of what you ask for. If you're in Christ, God is merciful, God is gracious. Even if you're not in Christ, God in his common grace gives us good things. And so many times we don't know what to ask, but God will always return our prayers with good things, namely, more of himself. This is what we should be praying for. This is what we're longing for. And look at what he says. He gives us an illustration that we can all understand. In verse nine, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? And if you're not a parent in here, like me, you're a child. And we can all understand this. That when a child goes to their parent and asks for bread, asks for something good, asks for something that they need, God will not turn and give you something harmful. And I would even argue from this illustration, praise God that so many times he doesn't even wait until we ask for what we need. Because most of my prayer life isn't asking for what I need. Right? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Most of us, we don't get anxious about our lives. We get anxious about our livelihoods. We don't get anxious about our lives. We get anxious about our standard of living. And we pray for those things. But imagine... As a parent, how long would your kids make it if you waited until they asked you for what they needed before you gave them what they needed? How long would they make it? Imagine how much more infinitely wise and good and kind and gracious God is to us. That he doesn't wait until we ask him for what we need, that he generously and graciously gives us what we need. And when we ask for things, he doesn't return with something harmful. He's not trying to spite you. And I think the flip side is also true. If your child is asking for a serpent, you're not gonna give them one, are you? And praise God that throughout my life, there were so many things that I thought I was asking for a stone and I was really asking for a serpent. And I thank God for all the times that I was asking for something that I thought I wanted or I thought I needed and he knew that it would not be good for me. And he told me no. Think about it. If prayer was this magic formula, this genie in Aladdin, where you say the right things and God shows up and he gives you what you want, think about where you would be if God gave you every single thing you thought you wanted. Oh my goodness, right? My heart is so selfish and so wicked and there's things I want today and that I trash tomorrow. I couldn't trust myself if God was at my becking call and just gave me whatever I wanted because I said the magic words, there's, yeah, there's no telling, right? You don't have to think about it for very long. In fact, this Irish theologian uh, named Alex Motyer, I don't know if I pronounce that, I don't know if that's Irish or not, but this is what he says. He says, if it were the case that whatever we ask, God was pledged to give, then I for one would never pray again because I would not have sufficient confidence in my own wisdom to ask God for anything. And I think if you consider it, you will agree. It would impose an intolerable burden on frail human wisdom if by his prayer promises, God was pledged to give whatever we ask, when we ask it, and exactly the terms we ask. How could we bear the burden? I thank God for all the times that I thought I was asking for bread when I was really asking for stones and for serpents. And God did not give me what I asked for, but what did he give me? He gave me himself. He gave me what I needed. 
not what I thought I wanted. You see the difference? And then Jesus doubles down on this. Verse 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. And I love this. The theology, the doctrine of fallen humanity right out of the mouth of Jesus. You people are evil, right? And we can't argue with him one bit because we know we are. He recognizes that sin is deep within us and he calls us evil. But notice at the same time, he doesn't deny that even in our evil state, we can give our children good things. That if you who are evil, me who is evil, I love to give good gifts to the people that I love. And Jesus says, how much more does your heavenly father, who is holy and perfectly good, everything he does is loving, everything he does is merciful and gracious and kind and just. If you're evil and you're able to provide your children with good things, how much more does your father in heaven, who there is no evil in him, Everything he does is loving, and he knows all. He is all-knowing, all-powerful. He is gracious. He is kind. He's not, you know, a little bit kind and a little bit just and 10% this and 20% that. No, he's 100% kind. He's 100% gracious. He's 100% just. He's 100% merciful. If you're evil and you can give good gifts to your children, how much more can your heavenly Father, who is not evil in the slightest, how much more can he give you good things when you ask him? And I think all of us, if we would look around at our lives, we say this often here at High Point, but the biggest lie that you and I believe is certainty. The biggest lie that you and I believe is that the stuff that we have, the health that we have, the possessions that we have is because we've done something to hold it all together. We've done something to earn it. We are way more fragile than you and I like to believe and like to think. My life could change in an instant before I got off this stage with a phone call, with an accident, with a text message, with God allowing something to happen in my own organs. I am not holding this together, not one bit, not my life, not my income, not my job. But the biggest lie we believe is that what we have is because we've earned it. And this is why we don't pray. Why would I pray if I can go out and get what I really want? Why would I pray if I can work and get the money that I really love? Why would I pray if I can go and, and go to the doctor and do all the things and, and preserve my own health, preserve my own wealth? I don't pray because that's not my treasure. I've got what I treasure and I can go out and I can produce it and keep it and earn it and save it and love it. And this is where we've gone astray. We started to believe in the lie of certainty when scripture clearly tells us, James 1, that every good and perfect gift comes from above. That you and I, the health you have, the wisdom you have, the skills you have, the physical abilities you have that have allowed you to get that job, to get that stuff, to acquire those possessions, whatever it is, that they are all good and perfect gifts from a loving God who longs to give you much more of himself. And there's so many times where I've asked God for stuff and I praise him that he said, what you really need is not more things, not shiny new stuff, not more possessions, not more reputation. In fact, you need to forego those things so that you can have more room for me. So you can experience more of my joy. 
times when I was sick and I'm praying, God, can you just heal me quickly? And no, you need to depend on me. Where you're weak, I am strong. You need to experience more of me in your life, more of my grace in your life, more of my mercy in your life. And I've walked with so many people who have gone through so many hard things. And we ask why, and we, 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 we go through these questions which are valid and just and right and real. But not one person who's in Christ that I've walked with terrible things through, to dark roads with, has ever said, you know, God withheld something, but he didn't give me more of his grace. He didn't give me more of his mercy. He didn't give me more of himself. We all have those moments in our lives where we wouldn't wish them on anybody, but there's a part of us that is somewhat glad and that we went through them because through them, God grew us. He showed us more of his mercy, more of his strength, more of his wisdom, more of his grace, that he gave us more of himself. And when we asked, and when we sought him, and when we knocked, he gave us more. And he says, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And I wanna revisit verse 11 as we land on the gospel this morning. Do you see the gospel in verse 11, Matthew 7, 11? Notice how he describes us. He says, you who are evil, and then what does he say? Your Father who is in heaven. In the same verse that he calls us evil people, and at the same time, he calls God our heavenly Father. How do we reconcile the two? The only way that we can reconcile those is the perfect life and shed blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. The perfect son of the heavenly father who lived in our place and died in our place and rose so that you and I could be united with him and God would call us father. The only reason that you and I can ask and can seek and can knock towards him is because he knocked first. He sought first that the only reason you and I can even have the privilege of communicating with the God of the universe and ask things for him and seek things and knock is because he sought us and he knocked. Revelation three, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone who hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That the only reason that we can pray is because he sought me first when I wasn't seeking him. He died for me when I wasn't living for him. And through Christ, I now have this incredible privilege to commune with God, to fellowship with God, not to get something, but to get God, to get more of his kindness and his grace and his mercy in my life. That's the goal, that's the gift. It's not the formula to use God to get the things we really love. It's the formula so that we'll love him more that we'll keep running, we'll keep asking, we'll keep seeking, we'll keep knocking, and Jesus promises that if we keep doing that, he will always give us more of himself. He will give us more of his power, more of his kindness, more of his wisdom, more of his grace. And some of you this morning, before you ask anything else, before you seek, before you knock, if you are not in Christ, you need to answer his asking and his knocking and his seeking and put your faith and your hope and your trust in his Life lived for you and his death in your place. If you're not in Christ, we plead with you. That's the prayer you need to, to pray and that's a prayer that God will always answer every time. But Romans 8, 
Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Pete Pranica would say, hammer, nail, coffin, this baby is over, right? The God of the universe gave us his own son so that you and I, if we believe him, John 1, if we receive him, if we call on his name, he's given us the right to become children of God. God's given us the greatest gift of all, the greatest treasure of all. And the problem is, we don't see Jesus as that treasure. If we do, we would pray. But we don't see Jesus as greater than anything that this life could ever give us or anything that death could ever take from us. But when we ask and when we seek, when we knock, we will start to see him that way. And I would argue, to the extent that we remember the gospel and we remember the gift that we have in Christ, to the extent that we will keep on asking and keep on seeking and keep on knocking for more of himself in our lives. But we don't ask because we don't remember the gospel. The more we dwell and focus on what he's done for us, the more we'll keep running and asking and seeking and knocking. C.S. Lewis says this. This won't be on the screen. I apologize for that, but I don't wanna read it to you. He says this, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time. Waking and sleeping, he's, and here's the kicker. He says, my prayer doesn't change God, it changes me. And that's the goal of prayer. Prayer is not getting God's heart on our agenda. Prayer is about getting our heart on God's agenda. You see the difference? Prayer is not a magic formula for God to give us whatever we want. Prayer is about conforming our hearts to whatever God wants. The issue is not whether God is going to give us what we think we need. God's going to do that. The question is not whether God's going to accomplish his will. He's going to do that. The issue is, are we ready to trust and receive that God knows what we need and that God's will is best and that God's plan is best and that the best plan for our lives is more of his name, more of his will, and more of his kingdom in our hearts? The question is a trust issue. It's a gospel issue. And I do wanna acknowledge as we close, I'm gonna give you some time to reflect and to respond. Um, but let me say this. Um, there are people in our body, there are people in this room that you are asking and praying and seeking and knocking for things that you are convinced are right along the will of God. If it's for a prodigal to come home, if it's for a son or daughter to come to know Christ, if it's for God's grace to capture the heart of someone you love and to transform their life from the inside out. And to that I would say, keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking. And as you're asking for those things and as you're seeking for those things and as you're knocking for those things, do not neglect to on top of those prayers, underneath those prayers, to sandwich and surround those prayers with God in the midst of that. Give me more of yourself. Help me to trust you more. Help me to know you more. Help me to want you more. Help me to love you more. God, help me to treasure you more as I'm longing for these things. Those are good and worthy things to pray for. Scripture calls us to pray for those things. To pray for the unbelievers, to pray for saints, to pray for all kinds of requests on all occasions. And if you are currently in a battle through prayer, begging God to do something that you believe is right in line with his will. Let us join you in that. Don't carry that burden alone. If you're not in a small group, if you're not in community, 
If you haven't let our church know, grab a response card and write it down. But don't carry that burden alone. We want to ask and seek and knock with you. And the tendency is when we have something like that that we're so desperate to see and so desperate to receive, we can begin to worship that thing and to desire that thing over God himself. And let us come alongside you and join you in that prayer, join you in that battle, join you in that fight, but continue to point you to the one who can sustain you in the midst of all of those longings. Psalms 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on this earth that I desire but you. My flesh and my heart and my prayers may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Church, let's get to a place where he's the treasure of our hearts. He's the strength of our hearts. He's the portion of our hearts. He's the one that we want. And when you ask for more of him, when you seek for more of him, when you knock for more of him, the one who asks will receive. And the one who seeks will find. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. That God longs to give you good gifts and to give you more of himself. And when you pray for more of God's kingdom, for more of God's name, for more of God's will, he will give you those things. So many of you, I hope, I left my study this week feeling really inadequate, right? Where do I even start? God is so gracious and so kind that in Romans 8, 26, I believe, he tells us that he has given us his Holy Spirit to help us in our weakness. I'll read it to you. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That even you and I, finite, fallen, evil, wicked, don't know what to pray for, don't know what to ask, God in the gospel has given us his spirit who intercedes for us, who groans to the Father and to the Son and his perfect intimacy in the Trinity, the spirit is advocating to the Father in the name of the Son on our behalf as we pray and bringing those things that you should pray for to your mind as you pray. The only way that you and I can fail at prayer is to stop. So church, let's be a people who pray. Let's be a people who run after the face of God, not the hand of God. He's promised us in this very sermon, he's gonna take care of what we need. Let's seek him for more of himself. Can we do that? We're gonna give you some time to respond and you don't have to be a genius to, to realize that our application this morning is we're gonna take some time to pray. Uh, we're gonna give you the acronym that we teach at our DNA, our discipleship course, and it's really simple. It's the PRAY acronym. It's that you would praise God, the P, R is you would repent, A is that you would ask, and then I would argue this morning that the Y is very important. The Y is that you would yield to God's will, to God's wisdom, to God's kindness, to his kingdom. So I don't know what you need to pray for, Some of you, it might need to be, hey, God, sorry, this is the first time I've spoken to you in a while. And let his grace rush in. We're gonna give you some time just to pray, to praise God for who he is, to repent of maybe a lack of prayer, to repent of some specific behaviors, if the Holy Spirit brings that to your mind, specific sins. But then to ask him for things, I would hope and pray that for most of us, it's more of himself in our lives And then that we would yield to his plan. We would yield to his will. We would yield to his kingdom. So let me pray, and then we'll give you a few minutes 
um, to do that on your own. And then as a church, we'll respond with hands raised to a God who hears our prayers, who longs for us to run to him, and who gives us good things. Even when we're praying for the wrong things, he gives us good things. God, Father, we're grateful for how much you love us. God, we're grateful that we have the privilege to call you Father, that the only reason you hear our prayers is because we pray to you in the robes of righteousness of your Son, freely given to us. So God, help us to remember the gospel. God, the more we remember it, the more we'll run to you in prayer like a son runs to his father. And as we are imperfect, as we try, as we think we know what we want, God, you give us good things. And God, most of all, help us to to ask for and to receive more of yourself. God, you are the gift. You're the only thing worthy of our lives. You're the only thing greater than anything that this life could ever give us and anything that death could ever take from us. God, we need more of you and nothing else. We love you. In Christ's name, amen.